90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm bracing for the cold, mm-hmm. uh, which by the time this airs will have passed. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're supposed to get down into the negative Fahrenheit range. I think, you know, people from up north don't realize how traumatic this is for people down south. <laughs> All the bread and milk and toilet paper. All of it. <laughs> I made my husband go to the store this morning. Um, <laughs> our good friend Gary McManus over at the um, at the Oklahoma Climate Survey does some spectacular. <laughs> we have here in Oklahoma and surrounding area a store called Brahms, which is a an ice cream store, but they also have um, groceries. And so he has a Brahms DefCon meter. <laughs> When it's getting icy, <laughs> which is like a one to five, whether, you know, you need to actually push people out of the way <laughs> to get your bread right. and milk or just, or the one, which is the least, you know, offensive on the scales. Oh no, I'm just here for the ice cream. <laughs> so we're at Brahms Defcon three right now. And it will climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's very exciting. I just got back from Minnesota, which I expected to be very cold and wasn't, which was lovely, um, because we were at the Continental Scientific Drilling Facility looking at some of our core that we drilled back in August that I know I've talked about on here before. Um, so that was very fun this week. Yeah. I mean, looking at core is, is always a cool experience. You go to this warehouse that in my limited experience going to core facilities looks like that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) (laughs) So what's great is, yes, that is almost always how it is. Um, But now they have a new building. And so you're really just in a regular old geology lab. They bring all the core to you. Wow. You don't Mm -hmm. have to go pull boxes? No, not at, well, okay, I will not say not at all. Um, So they do have that facility you just described, um, but it's not on campus, but they have your stuff there on campus ready for you. Um, And they have a cold room, too, because a lot of these cores that are taken are cores done in sedimentary rock, um, like lakes and stuff like that. And so a lot of the measurements that people want to come do are very dependent on you know, keeping the gases in the <laughs> in the right places and all this jazz. So they store stuff in a cold room. And so some of our core wound up down there just in case we wanted it. And we had to go to the little cold storage locker a couple of times to get our stuff. But, um, yeah, it was really nice. It was a spectacular facility. It's in the same building as the Institute for Rock Magnetism, which unfortunately I didn't get to go bug them because I was too busy sampling my core. But... That's okay. I will definitely be back. And I was very pleased at how beautiful the University of Minnesota campus was. I have gone there for work multiple times, and Mm -hmm. it is a really nice campus. Yeah, it was really great. So, um, yeah, we had a wonderful time. We were threading the needle between a couple of snowstorms on either side of it. So it's been a very exciting weather week. I think it's just going to get... More awesome as this Arctic air comes down and we have, you know, yeah. minus whatever temperatures <laughs> in the next week. So did you stay at their, like their graduate hotel, the hotel on campus? Yes. I'm a big fan of graduate hotels. Um, <laughs> I love them. There's one in Iowa City where I have family and we've stayed in it before and now I got super obsessed with graduate hotels. So Yeah. Uh, they're building one in Dallas, and I can't wait. I can't wait to go. <laughs> That's where I always stay when I go there. Uh, it's got an attached Chick-fil-A. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> it's very close to the building that I do my work in when I'm there. Right, yeah. It's a five-minute walk, if that, to the, the Tate building where everything is. Um, and so it's quite wonderful. The actual, they have a restaurant there, too, that was really good. They do, yeah. I definitely sat there one night 
when a storm was rolling through and mm, just nice. I didn't want to walk anywhere and mm-hmm. yep. sit there and had a, a number of beverages. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty fun. Pretty fun. Nice. And you get to go through that scholar's walk on the way to the Tate building, which is really cool. Yes, it is really cool. There was like Norman Borland, Borland, is that his name? I did not know he was from there. Um, yeah, it was a fun thing. OU has a similar scholar's walk. Borlog, Norman Borlog. Um, they have a similar scholar's walk, but it's only for undergrads. But this was a really cool um, nod to, like, all the university faculty and staff that had won awards or were in the National Academies or all that. So that was real fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you, you made it back. But, you know, based on some some books that I've been reading recently – and the fact that you were going to look at core, I thought it might be kind of fun to talk about how do we drill a hole in the earth? <laughs> um, so you said to me before we were starting that, you know, you didn't think many people thought about how that worked. And I think that is absolutely true. I got an email from a member of the public, which sometimes happens, and she was asking me, you know, is this, there's some picture going around about that borehole in Russia that's like one of the deepest ones. It's like, it's oh, yeah, a, the super deep. Right. So the picture is like a fake of that. But I wound up explaining all that to her, um, sending her to a couple of our shows where we talked about it. Um, and she was just amazed, like, that you can, you know, pull sticks of rock out of the ground or that you could even like grind it up and get down that deep. So I think, yeah, you're right. It's kind of a weird thing that happens when you're trying to punch a hole in the ground for any number of reasons. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you might be wanting to extract minerals. You might be wanting to take rock cores. You might be doing geotechnical testing to make sure a building's not going to fall over. There's a lot of reasons. So Um, many. And you know, everybody, I think, most people listening anyway, are going to be familiar with passing through land where there's exploration going on and seeing those towering oil drilling derricks. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, so I worked in the industry for five years, and then I was an intern for several years before that. And getting to go out to the oil rig was super cool. And it surprises me how few people work in industry that haven't been to a rig and don't know what's happening. And all these rigs, you know, do different things. But the rig itself is, the concept is the same for all those things we described. For getting oil and gas, for drilling water, for coring for rock and all that. You know, the way you get something out of the ground, you know, the the mechanisms of the drill rig are very similar. Right, and geotechnical drilling is a little different because you're normally working with pretty small equipment going down 50 feet or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a whole nother show. Offshore drilling yes, <laughs> and drilling ships, that's a whole nother thing. History of drilling, like, that's a whole other thing. But <laughs> yeah, if, we we, if we limit our... Yeah, if we limit ourselves to... Modern rotary land drilling. I think we can get through this in 40 minutes. <laughs> I was going to say we don't use donkeys anymore, so that's uh, also different. You don't lift a piece of metal and drop it, and then lift it and drop it, and then lift it and drop it, and then it gets dull and somebody sharpens it over and over and over again. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, not that anymore. Um, yeah, exactly. So drilling for oil. Yeah, it goes back very far. You're exactly right. (laughs) And the technological advancements in drilling are mind-blowing. But just in general, so your average run-of-the-mill rig, you know, probably the most, the thing that people would most talk about, or if you say draw a rig, you know, is like this big stick that's up in the air, right? Yeah, and... That is to house one of the primary systems of a rig, which is the hoisting system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're going to drill down, you got to pick some stuff up to be able to 
drill down with and you've got to be able to like put some weight on it and, you know, get it into the ground because that's not always easy. And it's pretty typical when you get these long drill strings, which we'll talk more about the drill string and all that. But when you, when you get a lot of this pipe going far down a well and you have a very heavy bottom hole assembly, this hoisting mechanism may be lifting up one to two million pounds of pipe <laughs> routinely. <laughs> yeah, so this is um, this is why lots of people get really hurt <laughs> working on rigs. Um, exactly. I mean, mostly unalived, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like uh, you either lose an appendage or don't make it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's not even counting just like fires or anything like that. Um, right. But yeah, so. The thing that you see is you drive really quickly by a lot of these locations um, where all that hoisting mechanism is, is called the mast, which makes sense, right? It looks like a ship. <laughs> and so right. that thing that you draw, the derrick, I guess, is, is the mast. And that houses all the things within it that you're going to put down into the ground, and that millions of pounds is, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of things, right? It's the pipe you're putting in there. Um, but it starts with the thing on the top that helps everything work. And that is the crown block. Right. Which is a big pulley. Right. Because you're, And so, or go ahead. Oh, because you're constantly pulling up all that pipe, right? The pipe sits off to the side generally because... You're talking about a lot of pipe sometimes, <laughs> like miles of pipe. Yeah, you got to remember, these are, well, one, these are not small pipes. And then two, you're drilling down 10, 12, 20,000 feet and then turning sideways and going more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can't just keep that all upright, ready to go. You pick them up one at a time as you go in or three at a time or however big your drill rig is. Yeah, and so a pipe joint is typically, in the U.S. anyway, 30 feet. Mm -hmm. I'm and so sorry. most of the... Or go ahead. I have to apologize for you, John, for your awful use of only English units <laughs> for the rest yes. of this time. <laughs> oh, no, I, I have a whole rant. When we get to mud weights, <laughs> okay. I've got a big rant. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> on units. Um, <laughs> I was visibly angry at one calculation. Oh. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Okay, uh, great. I knew we would. <laughs> yep, so about 30 foot for a joint of pipe. Mm -hmm. And then a typical continental drilling rig puts three joints of pipe into what's called a stand. Right, exactly. Um, and so interestingly enough, so you've got these 90 feet-ish of pipe that's getting ready to go in the ground. And how do you know how deep you've drilled? Like, I mean, you count how much pipe's in the ground, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> so at the end of that pipe is your whatever you're drilling with, right? <laughs> it could be a bunch of different... Um, configurations, but the bit goes at the end of that pipe. Um, and that's how they tell how deep they are is whenever that bit gets used up, they have to pull every single piece back out to get all the way down to that bit, which takes a long time, but they is, there is someone that is sitting there counting and that's how they figure out how deep they are. And back in the olden days, <laughs> When you had oil booms, people would be hiding out in like the forests or on like hillsides. And when you had to bring your bit up out of the hole, it's called a trip. So when you're tripping out of the hole, people would sit there and they would count the drill, the stands of pipe coming out. And so then they could tell how deep their com competition was drilling. Yeah. So... So sneaky. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, and, you know, you said that, well, you can drill various ways. Okay, so at the bottom of the hole, there's a bit. There's different types of bits. Mm -hmm. But there's something that's going to grind up the rock. 
in a modern rig, that bit turns. Right. Some rigs, the pipe leading up to the surface does not turn. Mm-hmm. There's a driving motor at the bottom that turns the bit. Right. Uh, some rigs, you turn the pipe from the surface from a motor that's hanging on a snatch block mm-hmm. off that crown. Yep. And then there's even older rigs that use the Kelly drill system. Right. Where there's a drill bushing in the floor and a piece of square-ish a pipe with flat sides that that drill bushing turns. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I'm familiar with. So it's like all the rigs that I've been on all have, all work like that. They have a Kelly bushing. Um, and that the height of that Kelly bushing from the ground is um, one of the, the units of measure that they use is it's called the KB height. Um, and so that's a really common thing that you'll see if you're looking at, some of these drillers' notes from any of these drill rigs is they talk about the height of the KB. And that's it. So yeah, and I, I did a little bit of research before we recorded. And from what I can tell, this is true. <laughs> I, I thought Kelly Bushing, like, well, some engineer named Kelly came <laughs> up with this. <laughs> hmm No. No. So... Apparently, when drilling was in its infancy and the Kelly system was being devised, there was a baseball player named Mm. Kelly Mm. that was famous for making these really long slides Mm -hmm. to bases. (laughs) And, well, if you can imagine, you've got, you're driving this miles long of pipe with a square 40 to 60 foot pipe at the surface going through this rotating thing with rollers it sometimes would jam up actually more often than not in the early days and people would scream slide kelly slide (laughs) there you go and it's now the kelly drilling system and the kelly bushing (laughs) i love it i love that that is so common the thing that you call something becomes its like forever name well and even the hose that carries the drilling mud which we haven't talked about yet up to so on a kelly rig the thing suspending the pipe has a swivel on it so the pipe can spin or on a top drive rig that's where the motor is right but either way there's a pipe that carries the drilling mud up there a flexible hose Mm -hmm. And whether you're on a Kelly rig, a bottom rig, a top drive rig, whatever, it's still called the Kelly hose. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Indeed. So yeah, you've got you've got your bit. You're turning it via some mode of force. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we want to get too deep into the makeup of a drill string because honestly, that's above. My pay grade, anyway. Oh, that's the fun part, though. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe more than we want to get into this week, anyway, (laughs) because... That is very true. Then we got to talk about, you know, ultra-heavyweight drill pipe and what makes up a bottom hole assembly and... You uh, know, we should just... uh, We should probably just do that next week, because it's very interesting, because you have to hold... Once you have that, like, mile-long pipe, when you need to add more pipe... You have to, you know, hold it in place and screw another piece on. And it's not a a trivial thing to do that, whether you're talking about a stand of pipe or, you know, five feet of pipe. Yeah. Right. That's the the scary part (laughs) because all the stuff comes out the top of the drill string and, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's very, very messy. And there may actually be a couple shows here because probably so, true. you know, we've got to talk about so we may just really get through the 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 rig systems this week. Because, <laughs> uh, now that we talk, you, I think maybe you didn't know how much I love this topic. <laughs> right. I don't think I did because we've never really talked about. Uh, yeah, much. no, not at all. And I am kind of obsessed with it. So, 
uh, but I mean, we haven't talked to, you know, there's, there's casing, there's BHAs. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So much wireline. Cementing. Drilling. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so much. We're not even going to talk about perforating yet, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a lot, a lot here to talk about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a reason, you know, it's multiple careers. Mm, oh, that's exactly <laughs> that right. make up this field. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a whole a whole degree in this. <laughs> right. So, okay, you, you you're making a hole. Uh, you've got a way to move pipe and drill bits up and down and do this this tripping. But, well, I mentioned something about mud, and if you just have a hole in the ground that you drill, and it's not going to be stable as this just empty hole that you can drop drop a rock in and time how long it takes to fall to the bottom kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not only You've stability. You've got to support it. Right. Not only stability, but while you're physically drilling that hole, you have to get all those little pieces that you're breaking off and making the hole. You've got to move them out of the way or else you're not going to make any, you're not going to make any hole as we say. <laughs> If you're not getting the pieces of dirt and rock up and out of the way. So this is kind of a twofold um, problem here that gets solved by, just like you said, John, pumping something into the hole. So it not only keeps the hole open, but it also is a means of circulating all the pieces that you're drilling down in depth back up to the surface and out of the way. And it helps cool the bit. Helps cool the bit. Mm-hmm. And it is a way to get telemetry from the bit to the surface. Yes. Which is, is cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> now, this isn't the only way. You can drill with air, too. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's not as fun. <laughs> I, mean, I would say, I don't know. I don't want to put a percentage on it because petroleum engineers are already screaming enough. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably going to scream, too. Go ahead. <laughs> most wells are drilled with mud. <laughs> it depends on where you're at. Okay. It depends on where you're at. Uh, there are quite a few, not as much anymore, but back in the day, quite a few wells. And they're generally ones that are shallower. So a lot of stuff in the Permian Basin was drilled with air is drilled with air. There's a lot of air drilled. A lot more than you think air drilled holes. Because it's fast so when, and cheap. So when you say that, right, is it air flushing the chips back up and is it a pressurized well or are you not worrying about pressure so much just trying to get chips out? And just trying to get chips out. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but still a couple thousand feet. Which is not that deep. Yeah, correct, correct. So like shallow wells. Yeah, we're not drilling, we're not drilling to 10,000 feet using air or doing any sort of anything other than a vertical well. Yeah, correct. Okay, so the the trick is, or one of the tricks, (laughs) if you, if you put too much, too heavy of mud in the hole, what's going to happen? Well, if you put too heavy of mud, you're not going to be able to circulate it up and out and you're going to plug the hole essentially and you might fracture the rock oh well yes if you pressurize your heavy mud that is exactly right (laughs) which is not what you want to do you want a hole but you don't want a lot of different fractures moving out not yet yeah because then all your mud that you're pumping down your expensive well-controlled mud Mm mm-hmm is going to go flood the formation. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Which you want to unleash the things in the formation, not put your mud into it. <laughs> and if you have too little mud density mm-hmm. to balance the hydrostatic pressure in the formations that you're encountering, mm-hmm. or the formation pressure if they're not hydrostatic, you're going to blow your it's gonna... string out the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a big pressure difference between the surface and 10,000 feet, and (laughs) drill pipe looks like spaghetti when it gets blown out. For sure. So all those pictures that you see and all those 
parts of the old movies where there's oil spouting out the top of the rig, that's not good. <laughs> that's not like, oh, yay, we hit the jackpot. People are running around super happy. No, that means your well is you have catastrophic rig issues. <laughs> And you're probably about to die from the explosion that's coming. Right, exactly, because you better believe that those those stands of pipe, if this is the case, if your drilling mud isn't heavy enough to withstand the pressure of the formation that you're drilling through, the stands of pipe get shot out of the... It's like when you um, take the wrapper on your straw and you only take it off a little bit and then you shoot it with the straw... That's what some of these have looked like because they hit these overpressured zones of rocks and it just, yeah, shoots out the top along with whatever was causing that pressure, whether it be oil or gas. And because you've got things like diesel generators, electricity, and all of that on site, <laughs> if it is gas, there's going to be a fireball. Oh, yeah, exactly. You got tons of dudes smoking everywhere around an oil rig. So you don't even and, need to have the diesel generator going. <laughs> well, and then you've now got a well that is shooting out pressurized fuel yeah. that's on fire, and you have to call in a whole special crew of people to put that out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, John Wayne made a movie about it, in fact. Um. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's all. That is also a whole other very exciting um, thing. But you definitely want to get that turned off because also that's all your money that's just right. literally burning up in front of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, you've got your mud and you're controlling the density of it mm-hmm. as you drill. Right. And here is where I started having unit fits. <laughs> So because how, how do you, I mean, okay, okay, go ahead. I'm just going to let you blow. Pounds blow per gallon. <laughs> okay, so pounds per gallon hurts. <laughs> I understand that it's SAE. Okay, fine. <laughs> but then I was reading about how you calculate. So if you're trying to figure out what the, you need to worry about the balance point where your drill string goes from tension to compression. Mm-hmm. And you want that to be in your bottom hole assembly, not in the string. Cause right. the drill pipes aren't designed for that anyway. So you have to worry about the weight on bit and the weight of the bottom hole assembly. And what really matters is the buoyant weight because like being in a pool, this whole drill string is submerged in mud and the mud's pushing back. Right, exactly. I think we need to explain real quick that like this Kelly hose and the stuff you're pumping down to carry out all the pieces, it's an it's an annulus. Okay, so you pump all this through the middle of the pipe and out yes, yeah. out the end of whatever type of bit you have, a button bit, a tricone, whatever you got. And it goes out the end of the bit and then up the sides. So on the outside of your drill string, but touching like the, the holes of the, of the well. That's yeah. where it's flowing. Okay, go on. Yeah, so it's a straw and a straw kind of. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have to worry about the buoyancy. This is not hard to calculate, right? It's the weight of whatever you're displacing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why ships are, you know, and how many tons of water they displace. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I was doing some reading on this and how to calculate this. And they calculate a buoyancy ratio, which is fine. The density of the mud compared to the density of the bottom hole assembly, which is steel. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it, a number that was like 66 point something. And I thought, no, that can't be. And it is. It is the weight in pounds per gallon of steel. <laughs> and then you exploded. And now I'm and talking then I to your ghost. <laughs> your like, ghost is recording this because the unit yes. gave you an aneurysm. <laughs> I, I 
<laughs> poked my wife on the shoulder and made her take out her headphones so I could explain to her my outrage. Oh, yeah. At calculating a buoyancy ratio using pounds per gallon of a solid metal. Oh, joke's on you. She kept her headphone in on the other side. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Not even John Wayne's Hellfighters could put out that that fire. <laughs> no. I don't understand why pounds per gallon of steel makes you angry. <laughs> really? I can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> it's it's like also looking at logs and seeing kilo feet. That one also makes me very angry. That one makes me angry too. Like, yeah, very angry. You take the best thing out of the metric system and combine it with the worst the unit. Worst unit. <laughs> oh boy. <clears throat> yep. So, anyway, you uh, you have this mud that's, I mean, you can probably give a better range, but from what I was seeing, anywhere between 8 and 16 pounds per gallon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you going, so, like, how do you change that? What is What does that mean, right? Like, how do you make different densities of mud? So it's right. what you mix in, right? Right. And they're just called solids <laughs> right <laughs> which i always found really perplexing and funny <laughs> these pounds that you're talking about are pounds of solids that's it right <laughs> okay <laughs> and so there are these big in the old days they would have been pits that you dug by the rig now you can't do that oh no you still do that or Okay, you line them at least. They're now. just lined, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're still um, there. <laughs> but Or they can be tanks, and they're always you mix pits. the mud. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> and it gets pumped down, yeah, it comes out the end of the bit, comes back up. But now when it comes back up, it's got all these cuttings in it. Mm-hmm. So it goes through screening processes and filtering processes, mm-hmm. and then back into the mud pit and gets right. recirculated. Because it's and expensive. As Right, and as your drilling engineer has specified a schedule for the density at different depths, you continuously are monitoring, tweaking, and remixing this to keep the density what it needs to be, or adjusting it for encountering unexpected things while you're drilling, which never happens. (laughs) So how might you say, does your drilling engineer know what to expect to put on the schedule? Dun-da-dun. Here comes the geologist to tell you. I just want to make sure you're not giving engineers too much credit here. Right. You so could, You can send your hay mail to our new email that I don't remember. So. Wow. <laughs> so you, you, you do the hydrostatic equation like we do for the atmosphere. Right. But instead of air, it's rock. Mm-hmm. Makes and- sense. Yeah, but you have to And how do you know what rock's there? You do seismic. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And and how do you interpret the seismic? Then you give it to a geologist and they do some guessing. Exactly. (laughs) Liquor and guessing, as Dilbert would say. Um, (laughs) That's exactly right, because not only do you have to worry about what type of rock you're going into, but you have to worry about what's in those pore spaces of the rock, because that makes a huge difference, because you need to know... If, as you drill, something is going to have essentially negative pressure or have air in there and suck in your drilling mud, or if it's going to have a ton of pressurized oil and shoot back out your drilling mud. Those are two end-member scenarios that can cause catastrophic failure. Right, because you might say, okay, well, the pore pressure is going to be the density of water times the depth. Sure. Except it may not be just water. Yeah. It can be salty brine, which is really heavy. Correct. Um, and it may not be connected. If that formation is connected to atmosphere somewhere mm-hmm. or to overlain by very permeable rock, it is hydrostatic pressure. Right. But it can be trapped pressure. And in fact, in reservoirs, you are looking for a trap. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you kind of want that, but you want to know it exists because you don't want it to sneak up on you while you're drilling. But... Also, if you have trapped pressure, that's great because then the earth is going to do the job of shooting all that oil out for you. You don't have to use anything 
like a pump jack or any kind of flood mechanism to extract it. Right. And just to be clear, we've said this before, but you're not drilling into an underground lake of oil. Oh, if only. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You're drilling into a rock that has lots of little pores that have hydrocarbon in them, like a sponge. Right, exactly. And you have to get, you have to drain that sponge from a couple miles away Mm -hmm. with a straw. Right. Um, And so a lot of the stuff that you bring back up, you just said that it could be briny. Basinal fluids can sometimes have some really weird chemistries. And a lot of them are not, it's not just like salty water. Sometimes it's like very um, toxic water. (laughs) And it's just naturally. (laughs) Yeah, like it's just naturally toxic because you got some weird pressure and temperature going on. And so you can take in all kinds of really gross chemical concoctions like we have arsenic in our water here in norman oklahoma like there's just arsenic naturally in the water because of the rocks that are the aquifer right right so (laughs) there's kind of some really gross stuff in there so this water that gets brought back up you can't just like shoot it out onto the ground like you have to clean it or sometimes you actually go looking for some of these formations where if you did drill into them, they would suck up all the water you're putting down there. And so sometimes, and this is called an injection well, sometimes you're looking for those formations that have this negative pressure that will just take that water. And that's what you do with it. You just shove it back into the earth somewhere. Yeah, you put it in a deep capped formation so it won't come back up and bug anybody in many, many, many lifetimes. Or you and, don't do that, and then you get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> or you don't do that. Or you don't, you're not able to find one, or you've filled a formation, and mm-hmm. you start pumping in under pressure. And right. that's when rock mechanics comes into play, and <laughs> you can get earthquakes. Right. If only that hadn't happened somewhere and we understood it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that happens too. So there's a lot of... Um, a lot of science that goes into drilling. Maybe that didn't go into it in the past, but that goes into it now, now that we've learned a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, and really at the end of the end of the day, there's an operator standing there on the platform who is manipulating the controls for the crown, mm-hmm. trying to control the weight on the end of the drill string. Mm-hmm. So that you've got enough pressure to actually cut, but not enough to buckle the drill string or do anything terrible. There's somebody else controlling density of mud. There's somebody or some buddies working on adding stands of pipe. And then, like you said, you, you get down a ways and it's time to change bits because you need to go to a smaller size so you can run some casing or, or, you, or you've chewed it up because you hit a whole bunch of chert or something like that, and you just not, yeah. you're not making any hole, as we say, and so you got to pull every single thing back out again. Or you want to run a log. Yeah, yeah, that's at the end. Though logging while drilling is a thing now. Um, yeah, but it's really expensive, and it still doesn't happen as much as you would want it to. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So. And then you have the fun problem of you're pulling all of the steel out of the hole. And now you're changing the weight in the hole again. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you've got to watch the pressures. Right. Yes. So you, you're always trying to keep things in this drilling window where you're greater than hydrostatic pressure, but our formation pressure and less than fracture pressure. And there have been multiple accidents that have occurred during tripping runs because the mud density was not adjusted properly. Right, exactly. So just on this last rig that I was on, you know, we drilled uh, a couple, less than 2,000 feet. Um, And so you made it sound like there's always a bunch of people, and it just depends on the size of the rig. You know, we had two people. (laughs) 
<laughs> so there was right. the driller, and then there's the dude that's doing all of those other things that you described. <laughs> and, but uh, you're also, uh, you were probably operating off a truck-based rig, right? Uh, yeah, that time, this last time, yeah. It's usually, it's usually more than that, but mm-hmm. it was probably the biggest truck-based rig you could get without bringing in something much bigger. Yeah, and I recently had the opportunity to go tour the Geoprobe manufacturing facility. Ooh, that's fun. In Salina, Kansas, and I'd love to get one of them on here to talk to us. So they do mostly environmental drilling, and they do some water well drilling. Mm-hmm. So kind of that 20 to couple thousand foot range. Right, yep. Uh, and they have everything from a machine that I could put on the end of a bobcat <laughs> to press environmental tools in 10, 15, 20 feet mm-hmm. to semi-mounted rigs like what you used. Right. Yeah. Because we were taking core. So, but it was all like wire line drilling, which is a whole sort of separate, separate thing. That was very interesting because yeah, you, so- you take a core and you want to retrieve it. And you want to do that without having to, like, pull everything back out, right? Like, you would never be able to drill in that way. Because if you had to pull everything back out every single time. <laughs> and so, right. yeah, so when you're at, you know, 1,500 feet down and you need to, you're done coring. So it was really exciting. So you'd bring up, you'd stop, you know, you'd get everything held with the tongs and you'd stick this little wire down. And it would retrieve the core. And so it would go down and it'd hook onto the um, the rock that you just got out. It's in like a little, think of it as like a five foot long pill, essentially. And you pull it back up through the middle of the drill string. And then stick a new yeah. one on, throw it down there and it couples up and drill another five feet. Put another jointed pipe in, put another jointed pipe in. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It is. Like, the, the the technology that's been come up with to do drilling fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The clever ways people have figured out how to do stuff. And then what happens when things go wrong and you, like, drop a tool in a hole uh, and I have to go fishing. 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 <laughs> Everybody's had that experience, right? Like, you drop something down the crack in your car seat. Exactly. And like you got the coat hanger and you're trying to, and it's like that, except the coat hanger is a mile and a half long That's exactly and you're fishing for a multi-million dollar bottom hole assembly that weighs 30,000 pounds. Um, yeah. So more often than you would like when you lose stuff down the hole, you usually have to sidetrack, which means if you can't fish it out, it's just there. So you have two options. You can just drill through. This multi-million dollar equipment. (laughs) Right. But if it's too heavy or it's too dangerous to do that, you just sidetrack the hole and you just go around it and it's down there forever. There are untold hundreds of millions of dollars of sophisticated pieces of technology and giant lumps of steel Mm -hmm. stuck in holes around the world. That's exactly right. Because this logging wide drilling, there's a whole suite of tools that we could talk about um, (laughs) in great length that go on the end, just like what you are talking about earlier, John, where you're logging while drilling. Um, And so those tools are near the bit. And yeah, sometimes those get stuck and there's nothing you can do to get them out. So there they live. Yep. And when we were in Colorado, they were drilling relatively close to our house. And of course, me being me, uh, I had a seismometer set up in the basement at the time. (laughs) And they lost something in the hole. (laughs) Or were actually, I think they probably got stuck. I think they probably had a a cave in above the BHA. Mm -hmm. Because I just saw these very rhythmic, sharp pulses of where they were banging on the assembly, trying to get it free. <laughs> to get it, yeah. Yep. And the fishing tools are crazy. It's just all kinds of things to, like, 
stick down a hole and lasso something, essentially. And usually they put a lot of <laughs> a lot of torque in there to try to get stuff moving, you know, and you'll see trucks get lifted up when they're trying to fish because they're right. trying to get, you know, whatever multi-million dollar thing out of there. So that's pretty unbelievable. Well, and then like cementing and diverting, like we'll talk about cementing more, but like there's all these cool tricks they can do with plugs that go down the wells and like this plug travels down and then overpressures and blows itself out and another one travels down and plugs that. And mm-hmm. like th- there are some really cool ways to do things miles underground just with pressure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, that's where, you know, I said that the mud could be a telemetry method. And this is one of the wilder ideas that I've heard, but it works great, Um, which is the tool at the bottom can send data back to the top by modulating an orifice that the mud is going through, Mm -hmm. which creates a pressure pulse at the surface. So you put a pressure transducer there and you're literally reading ones and zeros and pressure in the mud. Pretty cool, and that's huh? how the data are being sent back up. It's very slow, but you don't need a whole lot of data from some of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's shocking. I don't know. It's shocking the simplicity. I don't even know. Maybe the elegance of the system with the amount of data you could retrieve about right. what's 5,000 feet underground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so fun and it was so cool to me how similar all the drill rigs are too though you know I mean there's not many ways to do it and exactly have a successful hole that's exactly it so you would think that a water well versus a gas well versus an oil well versus a coring rig are totally different and it's like they're not really no no <laughs> yeah not at all. So, and of course, everybody has like the thread couplers. They have their own proprietary thread that's oh, better than everybody else's thread on the drill pipe. You know? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's where you have like to make a... your decision about who you're going to go with, right? Are you going to be an Android or are you going to be an Apple? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like there is there. Well, there are standards like that. American Institute of Petroleum, AIP, has standards. Mm-hmm. Like short threads and long threads and buttress threads and all this. But really, most of the service companies, Halliburton, for example, have proprietary threads that they yes. they use. And it is 100% vendor lock-in. Oh, yeah. Yes. Completely. Completely. But you can turn around and, you know, lock in a different vendor for the next one. It just depends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, I, I don't know how this was when you were working in the industry, but it seems like to me now, most of the industry, the energy company doesn't own and operate the rigs. That's all subcontracted out. Oh, completely. Yeah, no. Uh, well, when I worked, so, when, oh my goodness, a long time ago now, I guess. But we had, part of our rigs were our company's rigs, even though it was a different company, but it was underneath our company. Um, And then we were just drilling so much that the other part were, yeah, subcontractors. They were not, not anyone. And I think that's fairly, fairly common. You know, everyone gets real specialized and no one really has their own rigs. So, right. Which is a problem because what goes along with all this is like, access to the land and leases and all that stuff. And you can have, you can pay for a whole bunch of leases to drill, but if you can't find enough rigs to drill on it, you've already paid that money and that's just tough. And so the landowner can say, okay, oil company B, come on in. You can pay me now and come drill on my land. And that happens a lot. (laughs) And one thing that I don't, so I recently read a book, which we'll talk about some probably in some of these future shows. It didn't seem like the public that leased their land was prepared for the disturbance that <laughs> drilling a well is going to be. Yes. 
on their land. Mm-hmm. Like you're doing a very hard thing that requires a lot of power and a lot of resources and many, many tens, if not hundreds of semi loads of equipment. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's going to be loud. It's going to be messy. It's going to be stinky. That is the nature of drilling. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's even weirder is that most people, if you own the land that your house is on, you probably don't own stuff below the surface. <laughs> so there are... Yes, split, split deeds. Right. So there are mineral rights, and then there are surface rights. And so companies come in, and they have to deal mostly with the mineral rights owners. But then you start looking and you're like, oh, well, you're not the people that live on the surface. And so then because drilling is big and messy and whatever, then you have to also pay the surface rights owners to get access to the mineral rights. Or you drill across the street and you have an angled well bore and you take those minerals anyway without giving the people that live directly above them any money at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and yet those can... don't, those often don't transfer. You know, I, yeah, I, I still own the mineral rights to the land that we had our house on in Colorado. There you go. Mm-hmm. I have no idea who owns the mineral rights underneath my house. So, but there is a very old well, approximately 200 feet behind my house. So I don't think anyone's coming after them anytime soon. Party yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, that part of Oklahoma was, uh, it, it was tap dry a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're still sucking every last piece that we can. So when you see those things on the surface, the little pump jacks, right? You know, that's that's the case of those are running when oil prices are really high because no longer can that well flow itself and you got to give it some help. So that's what those guys are there for. And my favorite right. is that in the UK, they call them nodding donkeys. Really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so those big pump jacks, they call them nodding donkeys. <laughs> hmm. Love it. I, I went down to years ago and would like to go again, Smackover, Arkansas. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The Smackover formation a is a big producer. Yeah. So there's a lot of drilling down there, still is. hmm And I went to some oil field salvage yards. hmm And you could just like buy a pump jack that was worn out or like buy a beat up tricone bit for 50 bucks oh yeah to sit on your mantle you know exactly people having planters all that yeah yeah and there's a museum down there that was really cool it talked about the history of drilling and like there was a big blowout that caught on fire and it took them like months to put it out and Mm -hmm. we went and saw the crater oh (laughs) where the well was wow wow um (laughs) yeah it's a it's a pretty cool Pretty cool area. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, these are um, really, I don't know, it's its pretty impressive. And, like, the history of drilling in general is, like, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And so, yeah, it's pretty scary, too, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. But, yes, we, we made it through a fraction of what I thought we would. Yes. <laughs> Because you had no idea how excited I was going to be. <laughs> no, I did not. I really did not. Uh-huh. Yeah, drilling is pretty sweet. Um, like, I, we had, when I first started in the industry, we were watching eight rigs apiece. And so it was insanity. And it was a lot of very long working days (laughs) right and then just recently i've drilled these two i've done these two coring runs and so that's re-brought back all my drilling knowledge and fun and i decided that that's absolutely what i'm doing if i have to change careers as i'm going to go be a driller (laughs) well we'll buy a we'll buy a geotech rig and you can come run it sounds fantastic i'll be there (laughs) but (laughs) if I do that for you, and I'm running the rig. Do I get to lick the rocks that come back up? I would be surprised if you didn't. <laughs> and that brings us to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. 
is that a good segue? What did you that. do? <laughs> Wait. I, I I open my email when I'm when I'm on the elliptical and I just see a paper that's called Eating Fossils. <laughs> I found my people. What do you mean? What did I do? <laughs> oh, this is great. I was surprised that this was in the Paleontological Association. I would have thought that, yeah, this just would have been normal geologist doing this. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Rock looking. It's a time-honored way of learning things about rocks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does make the surface of the rock easier to look at. I. Uh, you can tell things about the grain size, as we've talked about before, based on how gritty it is in your teeth. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but so this is the, <laughs> this is a 2023 Ig Nobel <laughs> in the chemistry and geology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> so while not exactly a paper, more of a, weird little newsletter um but this chemistry and geology prize to jan zalswicks um (laughs) yeah is in the paleontological association and it's about eating fossils and i learned some real creepy stuff here which obviously i know spitting on rocks is a thing or licking them to be able to see stuff better right if you're a little more cultured you have a spray bottle filled with water <laughs> that you as would any geophysicist oh uh, yeah exactly um, <laughs> there were lots of spray bottles of water and when we were viewing our core um there was also some licking because you got to tell grain size right so if something's yeah, a clay some tools don't exist for that that's correct if something's a clay versus a silt which this is important for mud weights sir because those solids <laughs> I love the attitude. (laughs) Those solids are frequently clays. Um, Yeah, so if you lick it and you feel anything, it's a silt and not a clay. If you lick it and it melts in your mouth like butter, it is (laughs) clay-sized. Right. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Another reason why you would do this. But this article gets even weirder when your buddy Arduino does some gross stuff because he's not just licking regular rocks. He's like doing things to the rocks and then tasting them. Yeah, this is where it got weird. <laughs> I didn't know about this. Um, <laughs> some of these descriptions were disturbing. Um <laughs> Um, Fossil shells in a mud rock, for instance, and coal fragments when burned leave an ash that as soon as it's placed on the tongue, it burns like fire and leaves a flavor (laughs) equally bitter and urinous. When sped out, it leaves a certain sweetness and a skinned tongue. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) Uh, What is wrong with this dude? (laughs) Or... The white and micreous sediment from one stratum had no taste in the raw state, but once burnt, acquired a flavor as well as a caustic quality from the calcining of the spar. Okay, so like that one I wanted to do because it acquires a flavor. Hmm. Interesting. Right? I just see, you know, like a charcuterie board <laughs> with rocks on it. Well, that makes oh, sense. This is the, oh, happy. this is an early Triassic. You can taste the, the acidity. <laughs> the ur, ur, what was the, the urine? The urinous. Yeah. <laughs> taste. All right, Arduino. How do you know what that tastes like? <laughs> but obviously, it's tasting everything. <laughs> or the spicy flavor, vitriolic, <laughs> yes, but with a certain pleasantness, pleasantness that I cannot describe, like the acidity of a wine. Oh, what a weirdo. Um, and it said that these were only recently translated to English. So, know. you know, so sad. if you <laughs> feel the need to go read them, you can. <laughs> so when I taught for um, my first semester as a professor, um, the person who teaches stratigraphy was on sabbatical. And so I taught stratigraphy 
which is fine. Um, and usually when you teach stratigraphy, you go into a little bit of the whole, like, how do we start doing stratigraphy, which is just the order of rocks, right? Um, and you talk about Louis Agassiz, who was this Swiss-born American geologist um, who certainly has some crazy thoughts about race. Not a great guy, but came up with a lot of the ways that we do stratigraphy. And so I hadn't really, and I've heard about him a bunch, but I hadn't heard of this Giovanni Arduino who was pre Agassiz. <laughs> and he basically, I mean, he's one of the first stratigraphers as well because he came up with these like orders of strata, primary, secondary, tertiary. And we still use the word, we don't use the word tertiary anymore, that's gone. But we still use the word quaternary when talking about recent geologic time. So even right. though he was a weirdo, <laughs> he, he did come up with a bunch of um, really great sort of rules for like the oldest rocks are on the bottom, youngest rocks are on the top. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he would burn them and eat them <laughs> and write his buddy about them. <laughs> and then there's this whole digression on fossils and the size of them and like would they be intimidating to somebody with a fork and knife um because gigantism or outgrowing your potential predators was one way to survive oh uh-huh yep yeah and then it gets even weirder <laughs> because we get into an idea of course this is all well pre-plate tectonics um that the crust is built up by countless generations of fossils indigestible to other organisms. I mean, there are some rocks that are that. Right? It's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but saying that you can see the shapes of these shells in lavas, granites, and meteorites doesn't track. No, no, certainly certainly doesn't track at all. I will say that I didn't know that there were foraminifers that were as large as your hand. And so when I looked up this pneumolites, that's crazy. Monster. Yes, they're very large. They're <laughs> super huge. And that is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I just learned this about like uh, Lilliputism, not Lilliputians, but lily putt hypotheses whereas the opposite of what you said about growing so big is that in order to survive you shrink yourself down because you need less resources that way yeah another approach mm -hmm. exactly so that's interesting <laughs> but yeah so these crackpots say all this weird stuff mm -hmm. about that stuff um stephen jay gould called that guy talking about the other the buildup of the organisms crazy old randolph kirkpatrick <laughs> right oh <laughs> uh, i love that mm -hmm. that's pretty good but he said you know there was still food for thought in those kind of weird weird things to say <laughs> yes <laughs> so there you go if you wonder about a geologist tasting rocks no they could be more strange Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, this is great. I'm really glad the Ig Nobel Committee did this great geology paper. It's excellent. Great. Um, but we would love to hear your thoughts on the taste of rocks or your questions about drilling, since we're apparently going to be on this topic for a few weeks now. <laughs> uh, as all through the show, Shannon just keeps adding week-long topics to the list. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I do want to point out, just as a reminder, that we did change email addresses. We're don'tpanicgeocast at gmail.com now. And we got a note after our return at the first of the year from Felicia that says, I'm glad you guys are back. I missed you. Oh. Well, we missed you too, and thanks for the note. That made our day. That did make my day. How wonderful. Thanks, Felicia. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, until next week, don't forget to drop us a line with your, your topic suggestions or your, your questions or just your comments. 
You can always find us, well, sometimes on X, <laughs> right? That's right. We're, we're at Don't Panic Geo. I'm at Geo underscore Lehman. Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science until you lick it. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.